everybody. This is Jean Nathan. It is Crosstown Conversations time. And um, I know I say this all the time, but once again, we really do have a terrific show for you today. Um, we're going to start out with um, Bob Marshall, who tells it like it is about our marshes. And, uh, and then we're going to proceed and talk about our port, which has, has kind of gotten into the shadows lately because the tourism industry is so busy promoting itself so that it doesn't have to give any money to the city, you know. There's politics going on there. And um, some women who have been organizing with millennials on very important social issues, and we're going to um, um, cruise through the show th- uh, and, and include them. Um, first off, do we have Bob Marshall on the air? You do, I think. Can you hear me? You know, just barely. It's kind of a funny connection. You want me to call back on another phone? Let me try that. I'm using my landline, but let me try my cell phone. Is that okay? Um, you know, you're probably okay. It's just, I think it's on my end that I'm not hearing you in my earphones. Let's see if I can... No, I, I'm, uh, I'm he- but it's okay. I can hear you, so we'll just continue. Okay. Um, um, so, Bob, yeah, so I'm, I, 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 you know. I'm here and happy to be with you. Thank you. Uh, Bob Marshall is our watchdog for our um, climate change-related issues in, this, in the state of Louisiana. He is um, keeping an eye on things that, some people uh, call disappearing, and he takes issue with that expression because it's a little too gentle um, in its implications when, in fact, um, what has happened to our marshes is more dramatic and destructive. So, Bob, I'm going to let you take it from there. He had a very powerful column in the Times-Picayune um, in the reflection section this past Sunday, and um I, I just hunted him down until I could find him and say, you better come on and you got to talk about this because, you know, it, it's just, it's kind of out there and, and we, we know it's out there and, and we certainly know that we have issues, but I think that we're not really focused on just how bad it is and who's to blame and how we're going to um, change things. So give me, give me your appraisal of what's going on. Well, the, the topic of the column was, you know, please, uh, once we've been trying to address our coastal crisis, you know, honestly, for probably since, I don't know, the mid-'80s, uh, and then, of course, since Katrina, we've had this coastal master plan. And lately, um, I'd say since Katrina, there's been a lot of attention focused, national media, international media, um, and we keep seeing these u- words used as, Louisiana's vanishing coast, uh, disappearing wetlands. And, you know, as someone who's experienced what's happened to them firsthand, you know, as a sportsman out there, um, you know, that's not an accurate description. I'm a journalist. And it gives the impression that this is just kind of a, a natural phenomenon, that these things have gently and slowly withered and gone off into another place. You know, that's kind of a... It's vanishing. It's disappearing. It's like a nice magic act at Disney World or something. Um, and and what happened was a, a very violent and ugly and 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 brutal destruction uh, of our our lower third of our coast coastal zone. Um, uh, yes, first we put levees on the river uh, so we could live here. That cut off the annual resupply of sediment that kept this huge uh, six thousand mile square mile estuary uh, above sea level uh, on an annual basis. But we know if that's all we had done, uh, the wetlands that were there in the 1930s when a good levee system was finally finished and cut off all the distributaries, um, then a lot of the wetlands that were there would still be largely intact today. Now, how do we know that? Well, uh, we know that since 1972, at least 10,000 miles of canals were dredged through the marshes, through the swamps, uh, for oil and gas and pipelines for that industry uh, that hired a lot of people and made a lot of money. Um, and we knew beginning uh, in the late 60s uh, what the toll would be on this great 
coastal landscape we live on. And we knew that it was hastening that destruction, that it was uh, one of the great um, forces that would take a process that would have uh, normally uh, uh, transpired over centuries and compressed it into a single human lifetime. And that was the oil and gas work. Um, That's the part that frightens me the most, is how quickly this is happening, considering the centuries and centuries it took for the materials that are under the earth that we use to tootle around in our cars and and fuel all our other uh, machines. And, and, And we're just chewing it up in no time. Well, you know, most of the damage was done beginning in the 30s. Uh, we were losing 50 square miles of our coast. And, and by the way, you know, it wasn't just marshes. <laughs> the 2,000 square miles we lost was uh, wetlands primarily, but also uplands, some of the high ground, some of the natural levees of the distributaries. Uh, so, And we're still losing it at a dramatic rate even today, 16 square miles a year. And it's one reason why this area is considered to be uh, the most threatened landscape in North America to climate change, to sea level rise by the end of the century. So so this whole phrase, vanishing and disappearing, it makes us seem like we've been uh, victims, like we're, you know, we didn't have a part in this when, in fact, we did. And notice I'm saying we. You know, I'm a native here, um, and the, the state knew, we knew, what was causing this rapid, some of the rapid, not all of it, but, 36 to 60 percent of that 2,000 square miles loss, uh, research says, can be laid right at the feet of oil and gas. Uh, and beginning really in the 70s, attempts were made to uh, to stop that type of damage, to get oil and gas pipeline industry to repair the damage, and they've never done it. And and if we continue to use those terms, vanishing and disappearing, that just gives this one industry more cover not to do their fair share in, dis- in, in, in re- repairing the part of the damage that they're responsible for. Um, so, you know, we have to admit the problem. We have to accept ownership of this. You know, um, I mean, not all of us work in the oil and gas industry, but most of us benefited in, in some way from the, from the, uh, the jobs and, and the, uh, uh, the taxes that were originally paid when this work was on shore. Um, so you know, until we can accept responsibility, uh, then how you know how can we then demand um, uh, this industry, which is still making hundreds of millions and billions of dollars uh, off these natural resources? How can we demand for them to pay their fair share? So, what is the source of the resistance? Um, it is um, basically. Um, uh, Profit seeking. You know, we destroyed our our, our nest, if you will, uh, because we wanted to make money. We knew what we were doing by the seventies, and we said, the people who brought it to our attention and said, "You got to stop." We said, "Nope, uh, we're making money," uh, and we're still making that that argument today. The oil and gas industry is nowhere near as large as it was um, when most of this work was taking place within the state's boundaries and state waters. Uh, it contributed the excise taxes they pay, the royalties they pay to get access um, to this richness on public land, uh, the rent they pay uh, for the right to to become wealthy on our property, um, contributed 40% to our state's budget. It's now down around 14% because most of that work is taking place offshore in federal waters, national uh, water bottoms and waters. Um, so, um, you know, but there are still a lot of people who work for the oil and gas industry and live in places like uh, New Orleans, Houma, uh, Lake Charles, Morgan City, uh, Baton Rouge, Lafayette. And um, they, uh, they're not the largest industry in the state by any chance, but they're the tail that wags a dog. And uh, the people who live here uh, keep electing uh, politicians, not just to Baton Rouge, but even worse, in my opinion, to Congress, uh, who refuse to hold this industry accountable. So, so you know, it's been said that people in South Louisiana are voting to drown, and I think that is a pretty fair description. 
Now, um, I thought it was a really interesting development that Latoya Cantrell, Mayor Cantrell, uh, joined up with other parish officials around the state to finally uh, go after, again, this is the second time we're trying because the first time the levy board tried and, and uh, the governor basically shut them down, Governor Jindal. But now they're trying again to go after them to kind of clean up the mess, which from what I understand, and you tell me if I'm right or wrong, they were supposed to do according to the agreements that they signed to have access to those lands for whether it was moving barges or moving, putting in pipelines or uh, whatever kind of navigation needs they had. So is that not true? Weren't they kind of supposed to clean it up according to their agreements? Yeah, the, the, the permits, you know, uh, a good accounting system, all the coastal zone is privately owned then and now, 90%. And so, um, uh, and, and, you know, what people were doing on their own property didn't matter until the nation passed the Clean Water Act in 1972 saying water should be part of the public trust. It's important to everyone. So, you know, you, it's the public's water as well as wetlands. Wetlands are important to clean water. The fish and wildlife, and obviously uh, storm surge protection wetlands are linear levees. So, so this this common resource is part of the public trust, and that doctrine means it, it should be protected for all of us, even if it exists on private land. Um, so, in 1972, Congress, a bipartisan Congress signed by a Republican president, said, "Oil and gas companies, you cannot destroy wetlands, even on private land." without a permit. <laughs> and the permits required them to return the areas pretty much to the way they found them when they were finished, filling in those canals and returning everything pretty much the way they found it. And with the oil and gas, they were never forced to do that. The oil and gas, and uh, many companies had claimed, well, they're still using those canals. Um, um, and then other companies went, went out of business. They were sold. No one, you know, who owns this? There's orphan wells, there are orphan canals. Uh, the damage was done, and they were not made to put up enough bonding money so that the damage could be repaired behind them. Um, so, um, so that's the problem, but now here we are. Uh, and let me just correct you on one thing. You know, Governor General did get a bill passed to kill that lawsuit retroactively, but actually it went forward in federal court, and, and the case was lost basically on um, uh, kind of legal technicality grounds. It was never oh, okay. – the merits of the case were never d debated. And, in fact, the oil and gas companies never debated the case on the merits. They were uh, working on legal definition, uh, which the, the federal courts agree with them that – uh, the state didn't have a, a right to uh, to sue because these were federal laws and federal agencies, and uh, you know there were a bunch of other decisions. Yeah. Uh, and by the way, uh, the state, uh, the New Orleans, has now joined uh, six or seven parishes that said, "Okay, um, uh, since uh, we're going to take them to court, saying they didn't honor our laws, our coastal zone management laws." and didn't abide by the rules because they need to get our permits to do this work as well over the last 20, 30 years. Okay. And um, the oil companies are trying to, trying to get those, uh, those suits moved to federal court. They're, they're not saying they didn't do it, uh, although their PR people will try to tell you that. And, in fact, some of the, uh, some of the landmark studies showing just what was happening uh, were paid for and done for the oil and gas companies. Uh, so they've known about this for a long time, so, so and uh, they they continue to win the fight in federal court, and they're trying to get the city's uh, lawsuit moved to federal court as well. So, Bob, um, you rang the bell pretty loud in that article. Uh, we've just been kind of covering a little bit of the history on this, which is not a pretty picture, but when you rang that bell, what were you expecting the citizens reading your article to do? What, 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 how can citizens um, actually have any impact on this situation? What are, we, what are we supposed to do now that you've told us, hey, it, it wasn't just, they're not just slipping off into the Gulf, they're, they're being destroyed. So what do we do? Well, um, I mean, obviously uh, you can get involved 
in community organizations that uh, contact your elected representatives. Uh, they could have demonstrations. You know, I used to say we need a million Cajun Marsh on Washington to get attention to our coast. Uh, but you know, um, you know what I tell people because this has really become a political issue. The Republicans in Congress, including our own congressional delegation, uh, oppose any attempt uh, to limit uh, to regulate carbon emissions. We know that carbon emissions are the main driver of sea level rise, which even our own state agency says can basically drown almost everything below uh, U.S. ninety. By 2067, not at the end of the century, in about 40 years. So, so how do you change that? The Republican Party, in our own congressional delegation, in our own Republican Party in this state, um, are this coast's own worst enemies. So I tell people, look, uh, join the Republican Party and change it, because if that's going to be the party's official stance, and it has been, if they won't take immediate action for this emergency. Um, then, you know, just imagine if <laughs> every Democrat in New Orleans changed their registration to Republican. Um, okay, uh, and, no. <laughs> and then the next round of congressional elections, I think you'd have, you'd have a different result. Uh, you'd have Republicans who uh, were green. And there are green Republicans out there. I mean, I know many of them. So, um, so yeah, I think you have to get involved in the political system. I think we need to look at our neighbors, our Republican conservative uh, friends and neighbors who uh, and say, look, uh, there's nothing wrong or inconsistent with being pro-life, pro-gun, pro-business, and pro-environment and pro-coast. Uh, this is a, a definitely a life-and-death issue for uh, our children and grandchildren. You know, I'm pushing, I'm getting close to 70, and I've had a great run here, and I've seen some wonderful things, even as I've watched this incredible estuary being beaten to a pulp. Uh, but the worst is going to happen beginning in 10 years, uh, and that means, you know, uh, my grandchildren, if I have any, probably won't get a chance to live here. Uh, it'll be too expensive. Um, so, yeah, that's people need to get involved in a loud way. And especially our Republican friends out there, they need to wake up and tell the people they elect, uh, look, you can be pro-life, but you've also got to be pro-coast and pro-environment. I like that, pro-life and pro-coast. All right, well, I don't think you're going to get me to join the Republican Party any too soon. <laughs> Although I have voted Republican in my lifetime, especially when I lived in the Rockefeller Republicans, New York, and there was a reason to vote for a Rockefeller who were actually really great people on the cultural front and on social issues as well. But, And uh, I, I certainly am not going to be going on and, and watching Fox television. <laughs> I know I have friends who, who, who deliberately watch it so that they can know what those folks are saying. I say I hear enough of it on the uh, other channels uh, that uh, try to encompass that point of view. Bob, please keep me uh, informed. Stay with me um, as things develop, um, especially on that parishes challenge. I think that's, to me, that's the most important um, um, movement that I see on this issue because I, I, I just, even Edwards, Governor Edwards, who is not, not too bad a guy. I don't see him moving on this issue, and certainly all of our business organizations in the state are in no mood to um, to challenge uh, this industry. I love what they did in East Baton Rouge, though. You got to give those folks credit. Absolutely. Uh, this yeah. group together, Louisiana. Are you familiar with them? Yes. Yes. And they were good, the ones great. who kind of, um, uh, with uh, their um, local affiliate, um, uh, I guess, together Baton Rouge. Um, took on ExxonMobil and said, um, no, I don't think we need to give you any more tax incentives. We'll keep that $40 million for our school system. That was, to me, a really big move. Yeah, and once that, once that snowballed, it's kind of like, you know, the pro football teams now. You don't see them moving all over the place. Well, of course, one's moving to, to Las Vegas. But, you know, because cities are just saying, no, we're not going to pay for your stadium. <laughs> we can watch it on TV. Um, and so, yeah, I think I think once communities stand up, and but people have to, you know, this is such a, 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 a you know, basically a 
an in-game issue. You know, if, if we don't begin addressing this issue within the next few years, um, you know, it, it will be um, uh, curtains for the future generations who want to live here. On that note, okay, <laughs> stay with me. Let me know what's going on. Thank sure you. will, Jane. Thank you. All right. Take care. Well, so we have a slightly different um, story to tell in our next segment because I have with me Michelle Gannon, who is Chief of Staff and Vice President of Communications for the Port of New Orleans. And yes, Virginia or Louisiana, there still is a port here in New Orleans. I mean, we've become so obsessed with our tourism industry and they're in the news every day right now because they're trying to fend off any attempts to um, uh, siphon off any of their funds of, to help the city with its infrastructure, which is something the mayor is trying to do. But um, uh, we just don't hear a, as much about our port. But interestingly, there's a lot going on there. And so I've asked Michelle to come in and kind of catch us up a little bit, update us a little bit. And I read something that is probably just a little bit on the, uh, a touch old, uh, but you've been, your rating has improved at the national level to an A level, and there's a reason for that. And so I'm going to use that as a jumping off point. What has developed in terms of the management and the finances and the and the ideas and the market segments about our port that uh, has has achieved that rating. And um, we've got a lot of competition to fight off from all these Gulf ports and uh, South Atlantic ports uh, that are better positioned because they're kind of closer to the water, closer to Europe, closer to South America, wherever. And so it's, it's, a, it's not a, a slam dunk situation by any means. So uh, what what's going on that was what was able uh, made it possible for you to get that rating up? Well, first of all, thank you so much for inviting me to appear on your show, um, Jean. You're one of the first people that I met when I arrived in New Orleans, and uh, so I guess I've known you nearly three years. And um, and we first were here talking about the uh, about the cruise business, mm-hmm. and um, I'll. There's probably um, I could talk for three hours and not get to all the topics that you just raised. So so uh, I'll try and cover what I can. Okay. The good news about the port is that uh, you're right. We we are not only here. We are here and we're developing a lot of really strong momentum. And what you're talking about is an improvement in the financial ratings that really reaffirm the fact that there's a lot of good things happening in the port. And just for those who uh, who don't really know a lot about the port, we are a very diverse operation, maritime and logistics operation, and we actually have four main businesses. We have cargo, which uh, and, and that diversity contributes. Here's the interesting point for all of you who live in this region. The, uh, that diversity contributes to a real stable, to a stability in our, in our local and regional and state economy. Um, the the uh, uh, average salary of Port NOLA tenant employees is about $74,000, which is 41% higher than the local average. And we like to say that there's a job for everyone at the port. There's, you know, uh, uh, skilled labor, professional, executive, just a range of jobs, some that require advanced degrees, others that require certifications, high school diplomas. You know, there's just a wide, wide range of jobs. And it's because of the fact that we've got these four businesses that I'll describe in a moment, that we are really able to have that that impact. Uh, In terms of the, within our jurisdiction, the port has about a 34-mile jurisdiction up and down the uh, Mississippi River that that, encompasses three parishes. Um, It's very important because of the strategic location and our ability to use those 34 miles. So, yes, our, our location is proximate because we're, far enough in from the Mississippi that it's a protected space, um, and yet it's got good access to, to um, Baton Rouge and the, and the Midwest. So it's, um, our 34 miles covers three parishes, uh, St. Bernard, Orleans, and Jefferson. And primarily the, the development has taken place in Orleans Parish in the city of New Orleans. And what we've realized, um, uh, you asked about the management 
uh, Brandy Christian arrived here in 2015, and one of the first, and she arrived as COO. One of the first things that she did was to initiate a strategic master plan to really evaluate what what's the opportunity here. And so, what she realized with the data collection and the financial modeling was that every one of our lines of business is projected to grow. Shortly thereafter, she was announced to be president and C the next president and CEO. When she assumed that role in 2017, she went to visit all the carriers and customers around the world. And what she heard anecdotally really reinforced what we were seeing from the financial modeling, and that is that the Port of New Orleans is very it has a tremendous amount of opportunity. It's attracted the attention of all the major carriers because of, for a number of reasons. A few of them include the Panama Canal, the completion of the Panama Canal expansion, which makes markets like Asia more immediately accessible to us. And, and um, we have subsequently attracted a direct service to Asia, which is, which is a tremendous um, uh, accomplishment and has helped build some of the momentum. We also have the um, – so the, the Panama Canal expansion has, was very helpful. We also have um, the uh, uh, change of delivery expectations. So 10 years ago, if you ordered something online or if you ordered something from a store and it came two weeks later, you'd be perfectly pleased. Now, if you press the order button at Amazon – com. You expect your delivery to be hours. there in 48 hours, or you're going to be calling somebody and complaining about where is it. That's really changing maritime and logistics, and what it does is it opens up opportunities. I never thought about that. I never thought about the impact on maritime. I, I, of course, I've thought about delivery and, and the packaging and the postal service, but I didn't think about um, yeah, maritime because, of course, a lot of the products are coming from overseas. That's exactly right. Yeah. And so what's happening is rather than shipping things whole – they're, in some cases, products are being shipped in components. Automotives or automobiles are sometimes shipped um, by components instead of um, instead of fully constructed, so that you can really be a little bit more nimble with your delivery to to customers. Um, one of the things that another thing that's really happening in uh, maritime around the world is that ports used to be flow-through operations. The faster you could get something, uh, you know into port and out going to wherever it was going, the happier everybody was. Now everybody's realizing that those jobs are not just – there's job opportunity, not just for jobs on the wharves and the docks, but if you can create some value add, if you can take commodities that come into the port, add value to them, there are jobs that are associated with that value Is, added. Isn't that the area that we have been somewhat weak in? And why is that exactly? It's a, it's a, it is a tremendous opportunity for us. So, for, for example, I'm going to give an example of what we call value add, and this is actually uh, an, a way that uh, an area that that the port and the and the uh, region have been very successful in capturing value add. Coffee beans come across the wharves, green coffee beans. They are all within our local area. Those rather than just move on to someplace else. They are. We roast them. We are. They are weighed, graded, sorted, roasted, packaged, and then they go off. So all those jobs that are associated with that are are done right here in in um, mm -hmm. in our jurisdiction, and mm -hmm. that's that's a tremendous opportunity. So we're looking for other ways in which that can happen. So for example, we import a lot of steel and rubber, rather than and and a lot of that steel comes in and it goes up to the Midwest to be to be um, to be used as part of appliance manufacture. And, and, uh, and other for other products, what can we do to use that to, to change that steel here? What kind of steel fabrication or light manufacturing can we that uses steel can we attract So, here? so there's this, this an implication of what you're saying that I think is very important for people to understand. The port is not just interested in ships coming in, dropping their goods and going away. You're interested in the economic development in this region Precisely. that somehow is impacted by those products that come into the Precisely. port. Precisely. And exactly. so that is a focus now of the port. Yes. And that didn't used to be true, did it? Well, I think ports all around the world are recognizing the, the, uh, the um, uh, economic prosperity that can be had in keeping some of the keeping some of the products that come in. So this is a competitive situation as well. I oh, mean, absolutely. Everybody's, absolutely. Everybody is seeing the importance of trying to keep that product 
in the region around the port and be developed because that has so much more value to the whole community. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. An example in Panama. Panama has um, obviously quite a number of ships come through Panama and um, a lot of sneaker company and shoe companies ship their uh, their, uh, goods into Panama. They're unloaded from the ships and taken to areas, to warehouses where they're then branded. So they come off the ships generic, say pair of sneakers, and when they get into the into these warehouses, that's where they're put into that's where they're branded and then put into boxes that are branded and shipped off to wherever they're going. So at least they're so that's the value um, the add packaging. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Interesting. Um, now you had before you had started to give the four areas of of, of our activity, and I wanted to, people to hear that whole list because I've seen it, and it's really interesting. Go ahead. Thank you for getting me back on track sure. because, again, I can talk about any of these. So the uh, four, our four lines of business are primarily cargo, uh, and that is that includes both container, those, those uh, uh, boxes that you see on trucks, and we call those um, TEUs, 20-foot equivalency units. That's how those are, are measured and differentiated. Um, and uh, so we are container, about half of our volume is containerized boxes. Half of our, half of our business is in break bulk. And break bulk are items that, you, that don't fit into a container but that you can sort of wrap your arms around. We import, for example, primarily um, uh, steel, rubber, metals, aluminum. I had zinc. no idea steel was coming through the port of New Orleans. Oh, my gosh, we're a major steel importer. And, Isn't in fact, it's one of the reasons why we were so vocal. Uh, and at one point, we were the only port that was vocal in, um, in really talking about what the impact of the tariffs was going to be. And we were in a particularly, uh, in a particularly uh, knowledgeable position to do that because in 2002, when then-President Bush uh, imposed tariffs, we saw, and picture this, we used before the imposition of the tariffs in 2002, we saw a de- decrease in the number of ships coming up the river bringing steel from 17 ships per month down to three ships per month. Oh. Now, let me tell you that what, what that meant in addition to the loss of 14 ships, 14 fewer ships with steel. After those ships unload the steel, they're cleaned, they go on up the river to the port of South Louisiana where they're loaded with grain from the mid- Midwest farmers. So it's reducing the outflow of goods through dramatically, the port as well. Dramatically, dramatically. Wow. So, so more jobs were lost that year in the, um, in the national economy than the totality of steel workers. So I, I, I know I want to get through this whole list of the different categories, <laughs> but I, I just have to ask, so, so where do we stand right now with their – they're still trying to uh, – um, Impose tariffs. So, are we looking down the barrel of um, something that's going to shoot us in the face and reduce our our cargo and our our, our business here? That, that's an excellent question. And what we did after we had such a profound impact, we saw such a profound impact on break bulk, which was our major uh, our major business back in 2002. That's when the port started investing in diversity and. Investing specifically in the cruise business, so protecting yourself so, from having that all that impact on one. Exactly. So what's happened? So this past year, yes, we had a, a, a drop of about thirty percent of volume of our steel and aluminum because of the tariffs. Twenty-five percent mm. reduction in steel, five percent of aluminum. However, the because we had we had strength in our other areas of business, including the container, that helped to balance it balance it off. Okay. So we're still at cargo. We're still so at cargo. So I'm yeah, going to move on. I'm going to move yeah. on from cargo. Because I, I do have other guests. Oh, yes, you do. Okay. <laughs> okay. So um, another another area of our business is rail. We have the uh, uh, New Orleans Public Belt Railroad, Belt Railroad, which we acquired. That was a big move. That was H- huge. Has that been talked about for a long time? Or was that an idea of Brandy Christians, the new CEO, or it, what? It was an idea that had been talked about for a long time. But it only the, the perfect confluence of of, um, of, uh, of circumstances occurred so that we were able to to um, make that asset exchange mm-hmm. and accomplish it. So mm-hmm. and rail has been that that um, that uh, alignment of the port uh, the uh, railroad with the port has been tremendously successful um, in a number of ways that that I could go into. Another area of business that we have is industrial real estate along the 
um, uh, Inner Harbor Canal, we have about 1,000 acres of industrial real estate. Much of it is rail-served and water-served. It represents a tremendous opportunity. Is it just industrial real estate? What about recreational and other? My husband would really torture me if I didn't bring up uh, his his um, obsession about getting the Frank Gehry Amphitheater back on the river. Do you know the story about that? I do not. Okay, so for the World's Fair, he designed this gorgeous amphitheater, the back of which looked out, was open, and uh, while you're watching a performance, you're also watching tugboats and freighters and the moon come up over the West Bank, and it was torn down, by the um, company that, uh, Rouse Company, that wanted to put Riverwalk in, and they had this sort of formulaic notion that having competition for their retail was a bad idea, when actually, had that amphitheater still been up, it would have brought them so much business. So he want, and it was beautiful. And Frank Gehry has been trying to get a piece in New Orleans for a virtually half a lifetime. Let's follow up on that after okay. off, offline. Offline. Um, and so the industrial real estate that is um, that's a tremendous opportunity for New Orleans East, and we'll be working with the city. Too, oh, okay. Um, because and New they've Orleans got East seven thousand. All get. Yeah. And and actually, I think it's an area of really tremendous opportunity. Um, and that leaves uh, cruise, right? And that leaves cruise. And then we we are also the sixth largest cruise market in uh, home port cruise market in the country, and we had a uh, um, very exciting announcement this past year that Disney will be coming, bringing I heard that, six yeah. calls in, uh, during Mardi time. Gras 2020. It's big time because it really shows that the um, Disney is, is uh, uh, very strict about where they, they can bring their ships anywhere, and mm-hmm. the fact that they're bringing it to New Orleans is tremendous. And I know that you've got other guests. So. <laughs> no, we're, we're running out of time, but um, give me, um, again, you know, I started the discussion with the fact that we used to think of New Orleans primarily as a port city. That was its raison d'etre uh, in the beginning, when it was when the Mississippi River was the equivalent of the Pacific Ocean, actually, when the Midwest was like the West before we pushed out West and before we built railroads that took all of our movement to, into this kind of horizontal pattern and, and less of things coming down the river. But we still are the – are we not still the largest uh, bulk – uh, port in the world. We are the com- the the uh, uh, the ports that are between Baton Rouge and the mouth of the river combined are the largest port complex in the world. But I would like to I would like to say that we are still uh, we are still very very much a port city. We are a hub for rail. We have access to six class one railroads, which is unbelievable. We're the only deep water port with that kind of logistics um, flexibility. We have a container on barge service that that is um, it has become a national model. So we absolutely 100% still are. Um, the, I want to make one ad, and then I'll tell you what that means. One ad for the port. We actually have monthly public tours, public boat tours, that um, on the la- generally it's the last Friday of every month. And if you go to portnola.com and under the community section, there's an opportunity to sign up for the public boat tours. And I would really encourage oh, everybody. Oh, that's so important. There's because nothing like people, seeing it. There's nothing like seeing it. Exactly. And, and, I think and, and quite it. frankly, there's nothing like being on the docks and the wharves of New Orleans. It is just it's a, it's a spectacular place. Exactly. And exactly. So Portnola.com for under, under the, the community, community section. section, and then they'll uh, have the information on mo- monthly public tours. Do you hear that, everybody? You take advantage of that because that's 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 a great opportunity. That's a really thoughtful thing to do for people. Yeah. Oh, well, so well, can, because to your point, we we are Port City, and and yet. People don't get to see it because we've got the flood walls, and so they don't get to see the vibrance of the operations. And then after 9-11, every port was shut down as a secure became a secured facility. So people tell us all the time about how they used to drive onto the docks with a bottle of wine on Friday night. They probably weren't supposed to do that, but we still hear stories of people, you know, going they and enjoying it. They can still do that on the levee in Holy Cross, which was one of the reasons why I was very active with the community there in trying to prevent high-rise condos being built right on the levee, because that is a very beautiful piece. It's a lovely It's probably one of the last stretches of simple green levee on the whole darn river. It's a lovely area. It's a lovely area. Thank you. Yes, it pretty much is. Thank you so much for having me. I'm I'm so um, happy that you came, and um, I would like you to come back as things develop. I know you've got these great big new cranes that are very important in helping you move um, your 
break bulk. Mm-hmm. Or no, no, that would be the containers. containers. That's for the containers. Um, and so that's that was kind of what triggered me calling you was seeing that story and saying, wow, I bet people have no clue what's really going on because all we hear about right now is tourism. And I was in the French Quarter over the weekend. It's just a little bit too much. And we you have know, to I figure out how to move that around. They, I was just going to say there are so many other neighborhoods. And there's on the West Bank you've got the view of, of the uh, city from – from Algiers and that, that fabulous mm-hmm. ferry, which is in itself just fun to do. Yep. Um, and then they're uptown, the, the city park and, and Audubon Park. There are just so many parts of New Orleans to enjoy. It's, it's, uh, and, and I Proximity think to the Mississippi River, <laughs> legendary um, uh, river in the whole world. Exactly. Yeah. I totally agree. Yeah. Well, thank you again. Michelle, thank you so much. And I, I, I'm so happy to hear Michelle is uh, a newbie in town for no longer really after all these years but um that you've decided to settle here is a great thing and i i hope you um have enjoy yourself in the city of new Orleans for the rest of your life oh wait we're looking forward to that okay. <laughs> thanks much all right thank you very much okay so um my next guests um who are just piling into the studio right now um are involved in um, one of our, you know, really current, very alive, um, make sure you can hear. Can you hear? Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, issues in, this, in our country and actually worldwide, and it has to do with changing understanding of sexual harassment, uh, perceptions, just generally speaking, of what is okay and what is not okay in the way of um, uh, dealing with people in the sexual context, um, but particularly they have decided to target millennials. And um, I'm fascinated about that because, of course, I work with millennials a lot since I'm a very poor little nonprofit and I have to, <laughs> I need those interns. And so I, I've got 20 year olds in my shop almost all the time. And um, uh, I, 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 I I can't say that I've really figured you all out, but I don't see as big a distinction of of, of who millennials are as compared with people from other generations. I don't I don't quite see that. Or at least let me put it this way: at least I don't really understand that. So, uh, having said that, let me uh, let you guys introduce yourselves and let's talk about the event that you have coming up and um, why you're here today. Who wants to go first? I'll go first. Yeah. Hey, Um, my name is Noah Elliott. I am um, excited to be here. Uh, (laughs) But I have been I have been um, involved with Move since I was actually invited to speak on a panel on how um, panel to find our pathways. Yeah, it was called the panel to find our pathways, and it was all about how young people are engaging in activism that's important to them and kind of how they are bringing the issues that they find kind of concerning or near and dear to their hearts to the attention of uh, voters and elected officials and like how they bring those to the public sort of consciousness. Um, And I was speaking um, as a climate activist, which was um, really just an incredible experience. But being up on that stage, I realized that my climate activism that meant so much to me was so parallel to the different worlds of activism that meant so much to other people and that just as much as I wanted a platform, everybody that is young and engaged and kind of living in their communities wants a platform for their work as well. So um, that's what drew me to MOVE. I think that the work that we do, um, bringing young people in to not just vote but also talk about what they think is key issues that their elected officials need to talk about or that their candidates need to talk about. Um, All right, before you go too much further, let me uh, me get Bailey Stewart to to introduce herself. She's a co-founder of the MOVE initiative. And um, Bailey, what about you? How did you get involved in this and why? So I got involved in MOVE um, through Angel Wilson. She kind of Put up, brought us all together. So Clark Perkins and Bobby Manis are the other two co-founders of Move, 
And we were all working in politics and campaigns, and Angel was like, y'all need to get together and talk. And we literally met one day in her kitchen, and we took off. From there, we planned our first event. And, you know, MOVE is basically, it stands for the Millennial Voter Engagement Initiative. A lot of young people these days, they do not realize the impact of their vote. They don't understand why it's important to vote. And so we go and we meet them where they are. We tell them, hey, so with this Me Too and MOVE event, we're going to be showing them by your elected officials that you have in office on a state level and a federal level what they can do to help move forward this movement and why your vote matters to go out there and make sure you vote with people who care about what you care about. So one of the reasons why I wanted to bring you guys on the show is because I'm very concerned about the level of activism, and I mentioned this to you Mm -hmm. on the phone. Um, Do you pronounce your name Bailey? Bailey. Bailey. Um, I, um, you know, think that the biggest changes in political culture – sociological culture have been achieved by very dramatic movements. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we, we didn't we didn't finally grapple with the re- absurdities of segregation until um, the civil rights movement, which was huge, mm-hmm. just a huge, huge effort. Um, we're just barely beginning to deal with the gun issue. Um, as a result of um, a lot of the kids finally kind of saying, we just can't take this anymore, the Parkland kids who really organized it. And now the families um, up in Connecticut that are uh, also um, going the legal route to Uh challenge what's happened. But um, So I'm very concerned that we have a, a kind of plethora of nonprofits out there that are all parsing this issue and that issue and that issue. And I'm, I just, I'm not clear on how that kind of fragmentation, and you, you just gave me a, a, a very, I'm not surprised at all that Angel Wilson in particular <laughs> was bringing you together because, you know, she's a veteran. She knows yeah. what, what, how to get things done. Um, but I, I'm, I'm just concerned about, um, do and, and all that conversation I had with Bob Marshall at the beginning of the show and how uh, challenged the whole situation is um, with our marshes and so forth. I, are we activated enough? Activism is, is a you know funny word, but are we activated enough to I get do not. the job done? I feel like we are getting there. Um, I think it's great that we have all these nonprofits drawing attention to all these issues that, you know, people really didn't talk about before. And I feel like the more people are talking about it, the more active they'll get and more involved. You know, my thing is I think the most thing you can do as an activist is go out and vote. That's the most important thing you can do because when you go vote, you're showing those elected officials, hey, if you don't do what you're saying you're going to do or if you don't listen to what your people are saying, we're going to vote somebody else in who does listen to us. So that's more than just voting. That's called holding them accountable. political people accountable mm-hmm. and staying on the case because that's part of the problem, I think, is that once we get people elected, we kind of – you know, go back home and watch TV. Yeah, we forget about it. We're like, oh, we got the men, and they're going to do what we need. We right. trust and, them. And, and it, it doesn't necessarily happen, even the good guys. Even the good guys. Yeah. You have to hold everyone. No one's perfect, in my opinion. <laughs> and I feel like whether you're a Democrat or Republican or independent or libertarian, we need to hold everyone accountable. Because right. at the end of the day, we're all one human race. We're all one person, one party, so we shouldn't be so divisive about it. Like, climate change, that's not a political issue. That's a human issue. Everyone should care about climate change. It's, I think it's kind of ridiculous. Now, you're taking on, in this session that's coming up, and I want one of the two of you to give me the particulars on the meeting that's coming up, mm-hmm. um, sexual uh, harassment. Mm-hmm. as one of your core issues. Um, you defined it slightly differently, but uh, uh, tell me about it. Tell me about, first of all, this, the meeting that's coming up. Let's let's get with the particulars on that. Yeah, so we are holding an event called Move and Me Too, and um, we're welcoming our policy leaders to the stage to kind of, first of all, talk about their experiences as women in politics, as women who make policy and have been young women specifically in the work that they do. Um, and also to address... So that's going to be Helena Moreno yeah, and that's Mary gonna, Landrieu, right? Yes, we okay. are. Yeah, we have Council Member Helena Moreno and Senator Mary Landrieu coming. Um, and we 
are inviting them to not only just talk about their experiences as women, but also kind of how they feel like the legislative, excuse me, legislative landscape has changed since the kind of mainstream Me Too movement has begun. So we're thinking kind of in the last two or three years and what they think young people can do to keep this work going and to kind of continue holding our leaders accountable and continue making the impact that we want to see. Um, it's going to be on Monday, April 15th at Cafe Istanbul at seven o'clock. Um, there are tickets available on Facebook and um, on our Instagram. The tickets are totally free, but if it's a game time decision, we would love to see you just come. Um, Cafe Istanbul at seven o'clock. Cafe Istanbul is in the Healing Center on St. Claude Avenue, kind of in the heart of millennial land. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so the event will be great. We'll have a conversation between our two incredible leaders that are going to show up between um, Councilmember Moreno and Senator Landrieu. Um, And then they're going to take your questions, which I think is going to be a really kind of great opportunity for us to directly ask them as young people What's up? What can we do? What works? What doesn't work? And are you listening? Um, then we have a raffle. So come through. We have some amazing prizes donated from uh, really incredible uh, organizations all over the city. We have. So, for example, just. Yeah, yeah. So let's, we have. Let's, let's put the bait out there. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. We have. Um, Bar 3 has donated three classes. Um, we have... Meditate New Orleans has donated. They have this awesome event coming up in June. It's called Reclaiming the Goddess Within. I went last year. It was life-changing. And they've donated a ticket, so one lucky winner can be able to go to this great two-day retreat. And it's super fun. It's And it's um, at the... Two Sisters Pavilion, mm-hmm. and that's where it's going to be in hosted. In City Park. In City Park, right. yes. Yeah. And we're trying to get some other stuff, too, so come and you might be surprised. You never know. We might get, like, a Jazz Fest ticket or something. You never know. Yeah, we're working on it. <laughs> <laughs> we also wanted... made some artwork from uh, oh, our... Oh, my God. Oh, yeah, we love Warhol. that. Amazing. great Andy Warhol art poster that I can donate. I'll be happy to... I'm, I'm going to put my name in for that say, raffle. Yeah, y'all, come, <laughs> come buy a raffle ticket. Um, but, yeah, there'll be a great opportunity to talk, to ask your questions, to win some good stuff, um, and to get involved with the Millennial Voter Engagement Initiative. Okay, so I, I was asking you about uh, the sexual harassment aspect of what you're focused on at the moment. So I need to know why that. So I think that sexual assault and sexual harassment are an issue that is kind of a tale as old as time. This has been something that women have been dealing with forever, but it has just become a huge part of mainstream discussion and dialogue right now. So the reason that we want to have this event specifically um, is to bring attention to how that's impacting young people and how that can be addressed through voting and through policymaking. Um, Essentially, We felt like this was an issue that, though we kind of understood it inherently, both as women and just as people, um, the fact that it was able to be discussed more because people were bringing this attention up, the fact that we were able to talk about constructive ways to to bring attention to it and to address it. And get involved and, you know... um, I feel like Are it's... Are you from New Orleans, Bailey? Yes, ma'am. I, I have this feeling that um, harassment here was more accepted... Definitely. ...and less clearly defined as harassment than in some other places. Oh, definitely. New Orleans' culture of, you know, partying and just les aventures like having a good time, that has definitely fostered a culture where people, women in particular, are being harassed. You know, there's been cases where I've walked down the street and been harassed. I remember in high school not really realizing or even understanding the whole idea of consent and having a guy slap my butt and just be like, whatever, and walk away. And not realizing, like, hey, you need to stand up for yourself. You need to say that's not okay. And we want to have these conversations with women and men, old and young, so they they can know, you know, because I feel like a lot of people and a lot of younger people do not honestly understand consent and what is consent. And I feel like that's a problem. I feel like our school should be having consent workshops and all that type of stuff, you know? And I feel like this is a step for people to understand 
ultimately how their vote leads to solutions for all types of issues. Yeah, couldn't agree more. So um, what do you think is the critical uh, perceptual change that um, young people in New Orleans in particular need to have in order to change the behavior of, let's face it, guys? Yeah. Yeah? That's a tough one. Um, Noah, you want to take it? Uh, Sure. I just think that a key, key piece of this whole discussion is that sexual assault and sexual harassment have for so long been seen as a women's issue, and we need to eradicate that sort of language. Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. sexual assault and Mm -hmm. sexual harassment are an issue of people and everyone's behavior. It's impacts women negatively. It impacts men negatively. It impacts people of any gender. And we need to kind of take ownership as a population, not just as women, for bringing an end to this. Definitely. Because I think one way of expressing it is that guys feel like they have to prove to other guys that they're tough, they're macho, that they can get women to do what they want. Totally. Well, that's but just that's, a whole case of, like, you know, destructive masculinity. Right, like, that's you know, totally heinous. Guys, I feel like, you know, guys, if you want to cry, cry. If right. you want to give me a hug, give me a hug. You know what, if I say it's okay. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> but um, I totally feel like this whole society that we've kind of – I feel like millennials, in my opinion – we are kind of not having these feminine masculine lines and feminine societal rules and masculine societal rules. You could see that by women getting elected to office, you know, all that type of good stuff. Women CEOs, you know, women pilots, like guys still being aren't enough of all of those. True, no. true. But like you know, even men becoming male nurses or men becoming teachers and. There's a whole you're, you're man You're breaking nanny. down that whole gender identity yeah. as a key factor. I've, I've noticed that. That's, that's yeah. definitely. Definitely. Yeah. And so I feel like that is a big part of Me Too also because mm-hmm. I just, I do feel like it's, I don't know how to explain it. Like I think that the culture of sexual harassment and sexual assault is incredibly destructive to women in ways that we know and we are bringing to the surface and trying to address kind of unitedly as a society, but it's destructive to men too. Definitely. For them to think that that's the way that they have to behave and for them to think that that's the way that they have to behave to have friends yeah, or do it's, whatever. It's, it's that, those attitudes in part, what you're saying, are kind of imposed on them totally. by the old culture that said, yeah. Um, okay, yeah, it's not only okay, but if you don't perform that way, then are you really you know, are you really a guy? Are you yeah. really a, a man? Yeah. Right. So, um, millennials, millennial men, they're changing? <laughs> I Th- think that it's become more of a conversation. Not enough has happened, but I think that millennial men are, I think that millennial men are changing. I feel like millennial women are changing, yep. therefore forcing the men to come on follow along, okay? I think that's Because at the end of the day, we've been leading the game. We have, yeah. and they just, they're going to fall in line, and yeah. <laughs> that's, that's all I can say, because <laughs> it, it's up to us to, you know, it shouldn't be, but it's up to us to set those boundaries and let them know, and, yeah, you know, that's it's time, thing. it's time, okay. it's time for us to build the world that we want to see. All right, let's <laughs> close off with uh, place, time, subject, people. So make sure you come out Monday, April 15th, 7 p.m. We're going to be at Cafe Istanbul, which is like in the Healing Center by St. Claude. And we're going to have Helena Moreno and Senator Mary Landrieu there. You're going to be able to ask them questions from the audience. So if you have anything dying that you want to know, please come. We're also going to have great raffles, free food, and an awesome networking event. We have some sponsors tables being set up. So if you want to, if you're so inspired after the event and you want to just sign up, for a volunteer or anything like that, you can do it right then and there. We're also going to have voter registration. So if you're not registered to vote, come register to vote and all that good stuff. I hope to see all of y'all's beautiful smiling faces there. And I'm going to bring my uh, Warhol poster um, award and I'm going to bring my sign-up sheet for interns. Okay, that's fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> We'd love to have you. Amazing. All right, ladies, thank you very much. And uh, thank you for um, being active and trying to help get other people to be active. This is Jane Nathan. This is Crosstown Conversations. 
We will be back next week, Wednesday between 6 and 7. And thank you to Blake Jones, attorney, who I uh, have um, listed in my news uh, um, letter that we put out, but sometimes I forget to mention on my show. And um, it's very important that he's been supporting what we're doing, and he's a good guy. Blake Jones, the attorney. Get in, get in.